All right. Uh, about 10 days ago, I had the opportunity to have almost an hour-long conversation with an officer uh, who was a part of the Calgary Police Services. Now, before you get any weird ideas, I was not in the back of a car on my way downtown or anything like that. I was actually at an event. I was volunteering there, and uh, they had some police officers that were there at the event to direct traffic and all these different things. And so I struck up a conversation with this female officer that was there. And, and at first, you know, it was just kind of, hey, how you doing? Thanks for being here, that sort of thing. But over the course of conversation, she said something that made me think, you know, there's the potential that this woman is actually a Christian, that she's a believer in Jesus. And so I just asked her, hey, uh, you know, you said this, um, are you a Christian yourself? Do you go to church anywhere or anything like that? She said, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I go to Center Street Church. I love it. I've been really plugged in there. I'm involved in some small groups. It's, it's great. My faith has been a very, very big part of my life and it impacts my job too. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. You know, tell me a little bit about that. And so she talked about how her faith impacted her ability to, to reach out to people in our city who were suffering and in need, to people who were, uh, you know, maybe on the wrong side of the law, but they were there because life circumstances and situations forced them that way. And so she was telling me how her faith gives her compassion for these people that sometimes other, you know, officers or people in the community might not always have. And then she told me this really fascinating story. Um, I had asked her, are there many Christians on the police force here in our city? And she said, you know, there are a few for sure, but she said, it's not really something we talk about. And I said, of course, well, that makes sense. You know, I mean, you don't normally talk about faith on the job and things like that. So I guess I could understand that. She said, but you know, it's funny. There are a few. And uh, I had an interaction the other day that I'll tell you about. And I said, okay, what happened? She said, I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers, another officer. He's a believer. I know he is. He goes to my church. And he was telling me about some difficult difficulty that he and his wife were having in their lives. And so as he was telling me, you know, their hurdles and, and the pitfalls they were trying to avoid right now in their marriage, uh, I told him, hey, you know what? I just want you to know I'm going to be praying for you in that. And she told me that the other officer, when she said, I'm going to be praying for you, said, shh, we don't talk about that stuff in public. She said, what do you mean we don't talk about that stuff in public? And he said, you know, it's just not really a good idea to talk about our faith in the open, in our environment, at our job. I don't know that we should be talking about this. Maybe you felt that tension before. Maybe you've been at work and somebody in your office brings up their religion and you're thinking to yourself, ugh, I can already tell this is not going to go well. It never does. So I don't know why these people feel compelled to talk about their most personal, deeply held beliefs publicly. Can't you keep those things private? Maybe you feel that way and you have felt that way as this subject of faith and discussing what it means to have faith has come up in your public life. Maybe you've been at a family dinner and you felt some tension because as your sister started to share some difficulties that she was going through, there was a verse that popped in your head. And you think to yourself, man, I feel like God has given me this verse to share with her as an encouragement. But you hesitate because you're a little concerned that it won't really be received as an encouragement. You're afraid it'll come across as condescending right? Like you're talking down to your sister, like you have all of the answers. And so you're not really sure if this is going to be an encouragement or it's just going to lead to another fight. You've probably felt that tension of discussing your faith or having other people discuss their faith before. As the uh, ancient philosopher Weird Al Yankovic said, <laughs> he said, if you want to avoid strong arguments, don't ever talk about religion 
politics or whether the toilet paper roll should hang over or under, right? Those are the things you don't cover. By the way, it's over, just so we're clear. That is the correct way. And if you think otherwise, you're wrong. Um, So we know that there is a tension about speaking up about faith. And yet, as we've been talking through this series called Characters, we've been highlighting the fact that every story in the Bible actually points back or ahead to the story of Jesus, that every small story points towards the big story, that every little hero points towards the big hero. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about David or Samson or Mary or Esther or any of the other characters and stories and episodes of the scripture, they always point to Jesus because because he's the main point. He's the reason the Bible exists. The scripture tells their stories so that it can lead into telling his story, the one that really matters. Now, here's the thing. If all of their stories exists to, to point towards his story, if all of the stories and episodes in the scripture exist to point towards Jesus, then I would argue all of the stories, all of the episodes, all of the narratives, all of the happenings outside of the Bible exists for the exact same reason, that my life and your life is supposed to follow the same pattern as all of these other stories from the scripture, that we are supposed to point beyond ourselves and allow our lights to kind of shine a light on Jesus so that the world around us sees Christ and not just us. If you're a believer, that's what your life is designed to do, to point people, to reorient them towards Jesus, the one whose story you're a part of, the one whose story really, really matters. But that can be hard to do in a world that tells us people of faith should keep quiet about their faith in public. That can be really hard to do when everybody gets angry the minute somebody mentions belief systems or faith systems. I mean, how is it that we can fulfill that commission? We can do our job, let our lives point other people towards Jesus without somebody dying in the process. Is that even possible in the world that we live in? And I think it is. As we finish up this character series, we're going to look at one more story, one more character, one more man from the scripture, and his story is actually going to give us the blueprint for how we can allow faith to be an active and public part of our life and not blow everything up, not lose our jobs, not cause stress and strain and fights in the family. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to give you this spoiler version of his story ahead of time so that you know it's coming. This guy, his name's Stephen, he's found in the New Testament. He shares his faith publicly, and then he's killed for it. So maybe he's an interesting example to use. I don't want you to get freaked out here because at the end of the message, I'm not going to be like, no, God is calling you to give your life for him. That's not where this is going. Don't freak out. Trust me for a few minutes. I promise you that as we study his life, you're going to see a blueprint. And I'm telling you, if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you've ever felt this tension, how do I talk openly about my faith? How can I allow my faith to influence the world around me without being obnoxious and you know overbearing and all those things? I'm glad you're here because this is the morning where I think you're going to find some answers and have a breakthrough. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I think you've also chosen a great morning to come because I think you're going to sit here and hear this and you're going to say to yourself, yeah, 
I wish that the Christians, I wish the people of faith that I knew, I wish they would act like this. I wish they would share their faith in this manner. If they did, then I could probably get behind that. I, I probably wouldn't be so tense or worried anytime somebody brings up faith. So the story is found in Acts chapter number six. The verses will be here on the screen. You have my word. We're not going to read as many as we did last week. I learned my lesson. Acts chapter number six, but there are a few verses, so uh, it's a good story though. Acts chapter number six, verse one, and keep in mind that the book of Acts is the sequel to the gospels, right? So like in movies, you've got part two, part three, part four, part eight. This is part two of the story that the gospels tell. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. He's been resurrected and ascended to heaven. And then the church is like left wondering, well, now what do we do? Like we were just following Jesus for all these years. Now there's no Jesus to follow here on earth. So how do we handle it? Where do we go from here? That's the story the book of Acts tells. So in Acts chapter number six, we're only like a year or so removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is very, very early in church history. The scripture says here in verse number one, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecians, some translations say the Hellenistic Jews, among them complained because the Hebraic Jews, their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the church had a food pantry. They helped uh, widows especially that were in need. And there was some racial tension in the church because you had uh, Israelites, you had Jewish believers, and then you also had Greek believers. And the Greek believers were like, it seems like the Hebrew believers are getting a little bit of special treatment here. And so they started saying, let's make sure that we're not overlooking this group of widows as well. So the scripture says the 12, the 12 apostles, the disciples who followed Jesus around for three and a half years. So the 12 gathered all the other disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now that verse in and of itself makes the disciples kind of sound like jerks, right? They're like, you know, this is beneath us. We shouldn't be waiting tables. We got we to gotta preach. We got to pray. That's not really what's going on here. They had been actually overseeing the program, distributing uh, food to the widows in their community, but it had gotten to be so large that they couldn't effectively manage it anymore. And so they decided we need to start delegating these responsibilities. So they said, we need to find some other people who can take over for this uh, so that we can focus on what we're called to do. So they said, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, okay? They were excited. They were like, yeah, this is a good idea. You guys need to focus on what you do and we'll get some other guys to focus on this. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's gonna be our main character today. They chose Stephen, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. By the way, 2026, mark it down, Nicanor is going to be the number one boy name for babies, I promise you. <laughs> Everything goes in cycles, you guys. Nicanor, if you name your kid that now, you'll be ahead of the curve. All right, so they chose these seven men, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, that's an interesting uh, kind of tidbit of information that's there. That's because in the Jewish system, the priests were the ones who were responsible for caring for widows and orphans. And so when they saw Christians serving their constituency, 
and serving them so well, and in fact, putting their service to shame is really what was going on. They were moved. They were won over by the Christians' actions. And the scripture says, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Stephen one of the seven that was chosen. He was a man full of God's grace and power. He did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't know exactly what that means. It could have been supernatural. It could have been something else. It doesn't really spell it out for us. So don't get too hung up on that. He, he was doing great signs. And the scripture says in verse nine, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. These were Jews of the region of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So they started arguing about faith. Here's that tension that comes when people start letting their faith leak out into the public square, right? And the the scripture says that they're not able to win any arguments with Stephen, that God kind of gives him some answers to questions that the culture and the community around him is asking, and they're not able to, to overcome or to win in these arguments, So the scripture says they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Now you're like, wait, Moses, if I remember anything about the Bible, he was like way back here in the Old Testament. He's not in the new. So why was Stephen speaking against Moses? They made two accusations against Stephen. One was that he was speaking against the temple, that the temple, you didn't need the temple. You didn't have to go to the temple in order to worship God. And number two, that we didn't have to follow the laws that Moses had had given the Ten Commandments and other things, that it was by grace we were saved. So those were the accusations that they made against him. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish religious Supreme Court. They prosecuted cases of heresy, okay? So they brought him to court. They produced false witnesses who testified. They said, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses had handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Again, this is one of those things, I'm not 100% sure what the Bible means here. Like, was he radiant? Did he seem pure? Was he unbothered? I mean, in our world, angels are typically fat little babies with wings. So I don't know if that's the association they're making. He looks more like Cupid. I don't really know what's going on here. But the Bible says there was something they recognized in Stephen that wasn't true of everybody else. Then in verse one of chapter seven, the high priest asked him, are these charges true? What follows is the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. We're not going to read it because it's a little bit too long. It's the longest speech in which Stephen goes through and he answers the two charges that are made against him. He starts talking about the fact that Jesus really did come so that we didn't have to go to the Jewish temple and make animal sacrifices in worship according to the law. He starts quoting from all of these Old Testament figures. He's like, Abraham met God and he never set foot inside the temple. Moses met God and he never set foot inside the temple. uh, Joseph and all these other guys that he quotes through. And then he starts saying, guys, Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we weren't justified by our works by the good things that we do, but instead by God's grace. So he goes through this whole sermon where he answers the charges and then he lays down the hammer. If you skip to verse 51, he finishes up. 
Now, I, I've taken some preaching classes, you know, in school and stuff like that. And generally, they tell you not to end a sermon this way. But Stephen decides this is how he's going to do it. He says, you stiff-necked people, which was a big insult in his day. Uh, that's another one that should make a comeback, okay? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Yeah, that's another weird one. There's a reason that he used that phrase. Um, he's basically saying, you guys are not marked in the right way. You're marked on the outside. You've circumcised all of your boys to prove your allegiance to God, but it hasn't entered your heart or changed your mind. Hmm. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. He's referring to Jesus there. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But, verse 55 says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the only time in the Bible where we get a picture of Jesus in heaven in which he's standing. Every other time in the New Testament that we get a picture of Jesus in heaven, he's always seated at the right hand of the throne of God, as if he's ruling, as if he's in charge. He is the king and the sovereign over everything that's happening. And yet in this moment, when one of his servants has put his life on the line, when he has spoken up against opposition, when he has pointed people towards Jesus, the scripture tells us in that moment that Jesus stands up. He rises from his seat. One of the very first sermons I ever preached, you guys may know by now that I tend to preach to bottom lines. I want one kind of principle, one little phrase or saying that you guys can walk out of here with. And the very first one I ever came up with, it's probably the best one I ever came up with. I said, when you take a stand for Jesus, Jesus takes a stand for you. Man, that's good. It's true. When you stand up for Christ, Christ notices it. Yeah, I know it's a little cheesy, but still, it was my first try, okay? So here's the thing. Jesus stands up, he recognizes, he honors Stephen for what he's doing. Um, there's a, a, a theologian named F.F. F. Bruce, and he says, basically, as Stephen is acknowledging Jesus before men, Jesus is acknowledging Stephen before God. There is something very, very powerful happening here because Stephen decided to speak up about his faith rather than keep quiet. Despite what it's going to cost him, he decided to allow his faith to become a part of his public persona. And Jesus took notice. So he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That was blasphemy for a Jew. For a Jew to hear that Jesus was in God's presence was to equate Jesus with God. And so the scripture says in verse 57, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. Some of you guys feel like that's how religious conversations go, right? Somebody starts talking about it in the break room and everybody else is like, la, 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 I'm not listening to it. They cover their ears and they rush at him. They drag him out of the city. And the Bible says they begin to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, the people who were gathered around to watch, the scripture says their clothes were laid at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, 
Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now that phrase, fell asleep in the Bible, it means die. We're going to talk about why the scripture uses that phrase as opposed to he died in just a moment. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. It repeats that. That's an important point in the story. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And then verse 2, last verse we'll read, Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. It's a powerful story. You might say that's a sad story. I wouldn't agree with you. I don't think that story is sad. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's powerful. But I don't think it's sad. I don't think Stephen would say that's a sad story. I don't think anybody who was there as a Christian watching this unfold saw it as a sad story. And as I told you a few moments ago, I believe this story actually gives us the blueprint for how we should live as Christians in the public square. If you kind of break down the things that Stephen did here in these chapters that we've read, you could highlight two focuses, two emphases that he made in his life. Number one, he committed to serve the world around him. Number two, he was committed to speaking up when the Spirit led. This is the blueprint that you and I should follow in the 21st century if we want to allow our faith to influence the world around us. We have to be willing to serve and to speak. We started reading there in Acts chapter number six that Stephen volunteered to serve the widows. He didn't get paid for doing that. It wasn't like some sort of ministry position or a job that he was hired for. He volunteered. He didn't say, no, 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 this is beneath me. Uh, Don't you see? Didn't you read the verse there? I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I'm full of faith and good works. Like, I should be doing what the apostles do, not serving tables, not waiting on widows. He didn't say, hey, I'll tell you what, apostles, if you'll give me a small weekly stipend, then I'd be sure to overlook all of these, uh, this distribution of food. He didn't do any of that. Instead, Stephen chose to serve. And I strongly believe his willingness to serve the community around him is what gave him the influence that he had in his world. And I believe it set him up for the victory. Yeah, that's right, I said it, the victory that he was going to experience at the end of his life, his willingness to serve. Now, I know a lot of people, both inside and outside the church, that are the opposite of Stephen. They're not interested in serving. They say, no, 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 that's, that's beneath me. Don't you know my skills? Don't you know my background? Don't you know what I am in the corporate world or in the family world or in the community or whatever? I've put in my time doing the hard work. I've come early and set up and torn down. And I've offered for free and volunteered. I've done all of that. And it's like they demand. And I'm not talking about anybody in particular. Don't get the idea that this is like some secret message that I'm preaching to somebody in the crowd. It has nothing to do with that. I'm just saying it is a fact of the world that we live in. And you've experienced people like this. People who feel like somehow they are owed respect and authority. Like they can simply speak and people will listen. These are the folks who want the right to speak but not the responsibility to serve. And yet when you look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, at the very heart of it is a willingness to serve the world around you. Jesus said to the disciples, if any of you wants to become great, he must learn to become the servant of all. You see, in God's kingdom, becoming great is not a bad thing, but the way that you become great is by serving. Jesus said about himself, I didn't come to be served. 
He said, I came to serve others and to give my life as a sacrifice for many. You see, in God's economy, in the way his kingdom works, you secure a platform by people. That's how it works. You secure a platform by serving people. If you will commit to serving, then you will find your influence growing. Part of the problem is there are too many Christians who want to speak but not serve. And the world recognizes there's something wrong with that. And so they gain no influence. They're not able to move the needle at all of faith in in other people's lives, whether it's at home or at work or in the community. They've got no credibility whatsoever because they're afraid to get involved. You will secure a platform when you serve people. That's what Stephen did. That's how he gained his credibility in his world. He was willing to serve, even if it meant sacrifice. He was willing to put others ahead of himself. He became a leader, not because he got a title or a promotion or a pay bump, not because he had the loudest voice in the room. None of those things will gain you influence in the world around you. But if you commit to serving people, to genuinely putting your wife ahead of yourself, if you will genuinely commit to putting the good of your team at your office ahead of your own good, if you will commit to serving the people who live a couple doors down from you, I promise you will see your influence grow in their lives because you cannot stand over here and talk about people. You have got to stand right over here and be involved with people. If you refuse involvement in their lives, then you will be refused influence in their lives. You want your faith to make a difference because it's made a difference in your life. You want it to make a difference at your job, at your family, in your community. I'm telling you that the place that you start is not with words, but with actions, with service and love for the world around you. Stephen served, and that's what gave him credibility. But Stephen also was willing to speak as the Spirit led. And that's so critical. You've got to be willing to speak. Maybe you've heard this statement before, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And I like that statement. I appreciate the sentiment for sure. It's basically the same thing I just said, just put better, right? It's like you can't simply use words. You've got to have actions to back it up. That's why the book of James says faith without works is dead. You have to be willing to serve and sacrifice for the world around you if you want to have any influence. But that statement can be a little bit misleading too. Because, of course, you have to use words in order to preach the gospel. If you don't use words, if you simply serve and you never speak, you know what will happen? People will look at you and never beyond you. If you only serve but you never speak about Jesus because you're like, oh, I don't think faith has any place in the public world and I don't want to push anybody away and I'm afraid of the tension and the friction that this might create. So I'm not going to speak. I'm just going to serve and I'm going to let my actions speak for themselves. What will happen is everybody will say about you, oh, that Jeremy, he's such a good guy. He's just always willing to help everybody. You know, he's the best. We need a bunch more Jeremy's in our office. But if you're willing to speak, 
to say, listen, I serve because I've been served by the King of Kings. I sacrifice because somebody sacrificed for me. I'm willing to pour myself out for the sake of the world because that's what my God did. If you can speak and point people beyond yourself to Jesus, then all of a sudden your faith will begin to make an impact in the world around you because you serve first and then you speak. I believe genuinely that as Christians, we've got a, we cannot believe the lie that, that talk about faith has no place in the public sphere. That's craziness. Of course it has a place in the public sphere. Now, we shouldn't be obnoxious. We shouldn't force our beliefs on anybody. But if we genuinely serve and we speak as the Spirit leads, that means, and Simone conversation, Simone and I were having this conversation earlier this morning on our way up here. That means that every opportunity you have to say the name Jesus may not be spirit-led. Just because you have the opportunity to say to somebody, we know Jesus will fix your problem, doesn't mean that that timing or that method is correct. But if you will spend all of your time serving people, and then as the Spirit leads you, you will speak to them about God's love and his plan for them, boom influence abounds. Lives are changed. People are drawn to Christ instead of pushed away from him. We have to be willing to serve. We have to be willing to speak as the Spirit leads. Now look, in the scripture, we're told how we should speak. It's not just speaking for the sake of speaking because we believe the answers. That's probably a, a wrong way to go about it. Instead, the scripture tells us that Jesus, when he came, he was full of grace and truth, full of both, not 50-50, not more grace, you know, just all love, hippie Jesus, everything's cool, don't worry about it, whatever you want to do is good, God loves you, not just that, and also not truth Jesus, who's like, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised people, (laughs) you know, he didn't say any of that either, okay? Instead, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And when you read Acts 6, 7, and 8, you find out that Stephen followed Jesus' example. And we've got to follow his example as he follows Christ's. That our speech, the, the, fact, uh, the, the ways that we talk about Jesus in our life and faith and God and his plan for everyone, it should include both grace and truth. What does that mean? It means we don't compromise on what we believe. We don't downplay it. We don't water it down. We don't pretend like the Bible says things or doesn't say things that it does. I mean, we just accept what is. But the way that we share that and the way that we live that out points people beyond ourselves and to other people. In Stephen's life, truth said you are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and mind sort of people. And yet grace said, as fist-sized rocks were crashing into his head, His blood poured out as his vision narrowed and his life ebbed away. Grace said, Father, do not hold this sin against them. You know, he was just echoing Jesus' words, who hung on the cross. And although he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody will come to the Father but by me. That's truth. In grace, he said to God in his final breath, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he said, forgive them. They don't even know what it is that they're doing. Our speech should be like that of Jesus. Backed up by service 
and seasoned with grace and truth. If we can learn to do that, then we will find the influence that we seek. And I guarantee you, you, if you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't share the same faith as we do, they're thinking to themselves, yeah, if Christians would put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, I could get behind that. So it's high time that we as believers lived up to that expectation. We started to put our faith into action by serving and then speaking boldly as the Spirit gives us opportunity. One final thought. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, Dan, but look, Stephen died for speaking up and I'm not looking to die right now. I'm also not looking to risk losing my job because I speak up about my faith. I don't wanna create any more tension in my family life because I'm talking about everything I'm learning or what God is doing in my life. So I just, I don't know if this is the right thing for me, but keep in mind, thankfully, God is not likely to call you to martyrdom like he did to Stephen. Now that stuff happens in our world. It happens every single day. Believe it or not, it's hard for us to think about in the Western world, but Christians are the most persecuted group in the world when you look at it from a global perspective. Here, we're the majority, we're in control, but in three quarters of the world, we are not. And we, as Christians, our brothers and sisters really do experience true persecution in our world. Thankfully, God's not likely to call you to go through that level of antagonism or persecution because of your faith. Things didn't really go well for Stephen, you know? But one of the most powerful truths from Stephen's story is the promise that for those of us who are Christians, Although things might go badly in our lives, they can never end badly in our lives. Stephen died. He gave his life for his boldness and his willingness to speak up about his faith. But I've kind of joked about the story in some ways. And I've said, I don't think it's a sad story because in the end, Stephen didn't lose, Stephen gained. In the end, Stephen was was welcomed by Jesus into his kingdom. Stephen willingly offered his life, and I don't think he saw it as a huge sacrifice. I don't think he saw it as a terrible thing to give himself for the one who gave himself for Stephen. You see, God wants us to understand whatever you go through, that although things can go badly in your life, They will never end badly. You always have hope. It will always turn out okay because God is for you, not against you. Because even if you lost the thing that mattered the most, your life, we have the promise from God that we will be welcomed into an eternal home. That life overflowing is not just Sunday through Saturday, but that it continues into eternity as well. Things can go badly in your life, but they can never end badly in your life. Hey, you start to be a little more public about your faith. Again, I'm not telling you to be obnoxious. I'm not telling you to get a bullhorn and a picket sign. Please don't do that. You'll ruin it for the rest of us. But if you start to get a little more public about your faith, it's entirely possible that you might suffer a little bit of pushback or persecution. It could happen. You also might not. Although things can go badly, 
That is, you might end up at some point losing your job or your sister might cut you out or your boss might bring you in and say, hey, you need to tone it down a little bit or that cute guy is gonna ghost you online. I mean, I don't know what's gonna happen, right? But like there is the potential that if you start going public with your faith, you might get a little bit of pushback. But remember, even if things go badly, they cannot end badly. You always have God with you. That's why the scripture gives us promises. Promises like Jesus saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises that say, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Promises that say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Promises that say, I don't have any reason to fear those who can kill the body because I've already given due fear to the one who could kill the body and soul if he wanted to. Promises that say, the Lord is my provider, whom shall I fear? We're so worried about speaking up and sometimes rightly so because we do it the wrong way. But if you will serve the world around you, not just every now and then, make it a lifestyle. If you will then speak up as the spirit leads, then I promise you, you will see your influence, your platform, your ability to move people and point them towards Jesus. You will see that explode around you. I came across one quote that I'll leave with you as we wrap up. It's from a a preacher like way back in the day. Preachers way back in the day were much better than preachers today. They said better stuff. And J.C. Ryle was an Anglican pastor and he said this, see how the son of God gave himself for you and learn to see it a small thing to give yourself up to him.